Welcome to the FedTech Innovator Podcast, bringing you the stories and journeys behind deep tech innovation and entrepreneurship. In each interview, we go behind the scenes with the entrepreneurs, scientists, and visionaries who are engineering the technologies of tomorrow, today. These journeys are unpredictable and full of learning, and whether you're an entrepreneur, researcher, or funder of innovation, our goal is to create a community where we can learn from each other as we all seek to change the world with technology. I'm Ben Solomon, and I'm the founder and managing partner of FedTech. Since 2015, we've been building a bridge between the R&D world and the venture world. Every year, we get to work with hundreds of companies and researchers who are changing the world through technology. In this podcast, we're going to share those stories with you from our friends and colleagues in deep tech. I'm coming to you from our headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, just across from the river from the nation's capital. All right. Welcome, everybody. I am here with my uh, longtime colleague and, and friend, Will Schaefer, uh, who is uh, currently an investment director at Mercia Asset Management in the UK. And we're going to have a, a great discussion around uh, investment in startups and regional innovation. And I guess, Will, Will tell us uh, tell us about Leeds. What's going on over there now? <laughs> uh, well, I guess, firstly, Leeds United just got relegated. So that's a little bit um, disappointing. But um what is that? I, I wish I knew. Uh, I'm, I'm less of a soccer aficionado than I am. Things uh, like that. Yeah. What, what does that mean? I, it's it's no longer in the Premier League. Um, I don't I don't follow it all super closely. But um, at any time you get relegated, it's no fun. So uh, does it feel like a tragedy? Like are the are the the pubs full of uh, sad folks now? Um, we only recently moved back up, so I think everyone's kind of. Um, uh, resigned themselves to a few more years uh back back down the ladder but oh, okay well, as, a, as a cleveland uh cleveland and sports fan like i'm like oh man i'm glad they can't do that over here where you can actually get dropped <laughs> uh, that would happen to my, my teams but uh anyway yeah yeah so tell yeah so tell us uh yeah so and and uh for those of you that uh yeah uh, are listening I, I i got to know will back in the day when he was in dc and kept in touch and then he became uh uh, uh, an expat uh, over in the UK. So we'll, we'll sort of just share that that journey and, and your story a little bit. Yeah, so I was working in Washington, D.C. for about five years. Um, I started out at CSIS, the Center for National, um, Center for Security and International Studies. Um, and I was working for Dr. Harold Brown and uh, Ray Dubois. And, uh, you know, just kind of a, a postgraduate type of position, but really got an interesting exposure, you know, exposure to the, the defense and national security and government services community. Um, and then after that two-year position, I uh, moved over to the McLean Group, which was a uh, investment banking uh, house that really specialized in M&A um, support uh, and fundraising support for defense and government service contractors. So I was doing a lot with um, contractors in the national security space, uh, the intelligence Really, all, all, all types, you know, healthcare as well, um, health and human services contractors as well. So it, it really ran the gamut and um, it was everything. It varied from everything from sort of systems that went into submarines to armor for helicopters to really primarily IT services. That was the largest volume of business I was going through there, as well as broader services and solutions. And yeah, I was definitely going to ask you about McLean a little bit. So McLean Group is for folks in uh the govcon you know defense ecosystem folks are, that have companies in dc mclean group is kind of a legendary uh you know a uh, uh, broker around m a and like so to t- tell me a little bit about the types of deals that you did at mclean what's the 
what was the typical kind of profile of an acquisition? Sure. Uh, so typically we were working with mid-sized um, government contractors. So there's a, f- there's a few um, specialists out there that, that really focus in on this market and um, relationships are, are, are important in really understanding um, what buyers and consolidators are looking for. So we would help um, uh, business owners who their businesses had reached a certain phase where either they weren't comfortable continuing leading it on or they were looking to retire or they were looking for, for something to catalyze the next phase of growth. Um, and we would help them um, usually via exit, but sometimes funding rounds uh, to, 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 to find that next phase. So uh, typically they had a profile of revenues north of 10 million. Um, they would have some balance of prime and subprime and subcontractors uh, contract work. So um, usually they were crossing the threshold into non-set-aside work um, or where they held significant subcontractors positions with major primes or they were actually graduating into the prime position. So they had developed some unique capability or, or skill sets or past performance that it had helped them jump into that position, um, which, you know, there was a question of do you deliver on that continue to build or do you recognize that as a value inflection point and seek to de-risk and um, merge with a larger organization so she mentioned so set aside prime and sub maybe maybe like uh share a little bit on kind of what that means and why yeah. certain why, why prime contracts are more valuable yeah from a, a kind of mm-hmm. equity standpoint than, than subs so set aside contracts are difficult to transfer because usually there's limitations on them. So the government be like eight, eight, eight a kind of yeah sorry eight a uh, minority owned uh, woman owned veteran owned certs disabled owned um, there's there's probably a dozen or two dozen <laughs> different uh, categories um, and that's that's these categories are great um, uh, because it means the government can't spend you know all of its money. Um, running it through all of the, the large contractors. So, you know, big, big fan of these programs. But when it comes to selling the business, they do provide complications because usually there's a threshold with them, whether it's revenue, employees, age, um, uh, or, or ownership status, means that once, you know, that that, that work can no longer continue um, once, once the acquisition has occurred. So I'm not familiar... Anymore with the, with the rules exactly how that operates around an acquisition, or but um, it does mean that uh, either they're less valuable because that work can't continue, so you may still be able to get a sale through because of other reasons, um, but those contracts often won't transfer or won't renew depending on the nature of the contract, uh, which means that the buyer is not really getting full value because you know that they won't be able to continue that work. Now they may want the employees, they may want past performance, they may want any number of other things. Um, so yeah, so that work unfortunately is not carry the value that it would um, other other kinds of contracts. So the most- well, no, it, 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 it's, sort of, it's always been interesting to me because you, you do have this, especially in, in our region in DC, you have a lot of great businesses, yeah, that start under kind of a, yeah, a, that the categories, yeah, that allow for, you know, more, Seamless contracting, I think, is the idea, right? More ability to have the government kind of choose directly to work with with a certain company, but so they'll build these these you know great businesses. But then it is harder, yeah, because there's a transition point when they they lose that designation or 
yeah, that as well as, you know, what you're talking about of, of the uh, inability for that revenue to really create value in a, in a transaction, um, which is, is kind of an issue and a little bit of probably something that the government, I don't think fully intends, you know, to, uh, with the strategy around that program. Yeah. I, I think the, the best way to approach it is that is it just depends on what your intentions are with the business. So if your intention is to run it more as a lifestyle business, that that maybe transfer it on to another business partner or owner that you know who could continue to run it with that status, then that's fine. That's the perspective that you have. But if you're really intending to grow this into a big, big large business with the intention of an exit attempt, um, you know, going going through a full sort of business cycle, if you will, you really need to be looking at those programs as stepping to step. So you know, selectively pursuing work that's going to build certain types of past performance that's going to let you graduate and compete um, on a bigger stage. So that that would be the, you know, my, just depends on your frame of mind and what your ambitions are. Um, and then I would say there are other options in terms of just, not just selling a business. There are, um, you know, ESOPs become a popular way to potentially- What would what, an ESOP? It stands for an employee stock ownership plan. Um, and it's a tax advantaged way to sell um, a material portion of your business and so to recognize some gains from that. And then the, the employees will have no ownership stake in that going forward. Um, and there's, um, there's specific instruments with banks that help finance that. Now, I will caveat almost always you will not get the same value out of an ESOP transaction as you would via strategic or a different type of sale. But if you know your business is what it is, um, you know, that it might still provide a liquidity about for you. Um, and, and we'll just, just real quick, before we kind of move on to what you're working on now, I, I, the, we do have a number of listeners who may be, um, having, you know, an early stage company and that difference between prime and subcontracts is someone I, I wanted to spend a minute on of where, um, what's the strategy if you're kind of a small business owner and you can break in, you know, through some great subcontract work. What's the, the, what's kind of the goal in terms of migrating that to be more prime contracts in the future and, and when, why do you want to do that? Yeah. So, it, I mean, obviously it's going to depend on what sort of sector or customer you're working with then. So I, I don't, these are sort of rules of thumb as they pertain to, to, to an exit, of course. Um, but it, in my, in my experience, it was, it was really if you can become the subcontractor because you are the best provider, as opposed to say just being the approved provider that has a set aside status, for example, you really develop a reputation as being, you know, that firm that can solve this problem, and you can become the go-to um, group that that is solving that problem across different types of of contracts, um, then. Then I think that reputation can build towards some aspect of, of you being the prime. So I, you you contract directly with the government rather than through Boeing or Booz or whoever. Um, and if you can get out of some of those contract frameworks that allow you to be an approved prime within that, so you might be competing directly against them, or you might be a key part of their bid. So it's if you have some element of prime work, that's always going to tri- trigger some real value point because it just sets you apart as being a desirable from companies that almost always seek primarily prime work. So that's another prime contract that can add to their quiver. But similarly, that you can stand on your own two feet. Uh, it just speaks volumes to your maturity um, and de-risking 
um, that business and, and you're not at the whims of others. So especially in the government contracting market, you know, everyone's a competitor and a partner. Um, so where you're a prime, you know, that that sort of conflict oftentimes doesn't exist in the same way. You can just say, look, I'm the prime and I can, I equally too, if I'm a, I'm a bigger prime existingly, I can start to take even more of that work. So you as a prime, as a smaller prime, might still have to sub out to some other contractors, whereas a larger one might be able to just buy and take all of that market sells. And so that's an added bonus financially. Yeah, it's really, it's a fascinating uh, kind of the uh, migration of, you know, we, we FedTech, we work so much at the very start, you know, of companies' journeys where it's literally all about, can you can you get that first project? Can you get that first sale versus this mm-hmm. this is a kind of a more, uh, it's, it's a luxury, right, to be starting to think about how do you migrate uh, to different contract structures. But anyway, yeah, so, okay, so we, I remember clearly, you know, we, we had you over here in DC, you were doing great work for McLean. And then, and then there was the moment that you moved overseas and, and described kind of that journey, what, what brought you over, over to the UK and, and what have you done since getting over there? So, um, the, uh, so my wife decided to do a PhD and she got a full scholarship to do it at Leeds Uni. Really that, that's what it came down to. She had, she was paid to do her PhD as opposed to the other way around, uh, which is great. And, um, I lived and worked in Germany when I was at uni. Uh, sorry, those the other. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's the, the British terms coming out. Um, university is is what. Uni, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I like uni um, better. Yeah, so I, I'd always enjoyed being on the other side of the Atlantic, and thought you know now is now is the time to, to do some some time abroad. Um, and we just got married, so. Uh, we, we picked up sticks and moved moved to uh, Leeds with three suitcases each, and that was it. Um, and I continued to work in M&A for defense uh, for KPMG, um, where I started doing more sort of generic M&A work. Um, so the way it works in the UK is that um, there's a lot more information on companies, um, and, uh, and the market is of a much smaller size. So it tends to be much more, M&A is provided mainly out of the accountancies. Um, there are some independent um, advisors as well, of course, but a lot of the, especially the mid-market um, is supported by your big four accountancies as well as um, the sort of scale tier um, around them as well. So that's obviously your KPMGs, your PWCs. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't realize that. So you have lots of like a McLean group kind of organization. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are there are specialists, but because the UK market is so much smaller comparatively, um, if if you just wanted to do say defense, that would be quite difficult. Um, you 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 would do say defense across Europe if, if you would. Um, there's a there's a few specialists in the tech space, um, so that it's not that they don't exist, but the the volume of transactions and, and I think the big part too is the US doesn't have um, the equivalent to what we have in the UK called companies house. So a company's house means you have to, uh, after a certain size, you have to, well, A, you, as any limited company, you have to register on it. And B, after a certain size, you have to report publicly your earning, uh, your, your financials in a summary format. So it's just generally a lot more information about UK companies. So whereas well, in the US- so, You could be a private company that, that basically is forced to be yeah. having some standards that are like a public company. You have to disclose the balance sheet, P&L, um, not, not, and not in, in huge detail, but you do need to disclose it. And so anyone in the public can, can look at that. Um, oh, so, okay. 
Yeah. So, so in the U.S., obviously, you don't have anything like that. So it's much more about proprietary knowledge and relationships. And not that that doesn't exist in the U.K., of course, but um, there is a lot more that knowledge that is publicly available. So it's just the nature of how transactions are done is just a little bit different due to the size and scale differences. Um, and um, so I was just finding myself wanting to focus on technology and enjoying the earlier stage side of things. Um, and uh, obviously a lot of M&A really focuses, focuses more on mature businesses. And so I started talking to Mercy Asset Management and um, they recently um, won a fund mandate to call the Northern Powerhouse Investment Fund. And um, they previously managed a number of other similar of these regional funds, which I can get into in a second. And um, so it was a chance to be a venture investor, um, but to do it within uh, a region in the UK instead of um, moving to London, which otherwise I would have probably had to do. But my wife was doing her PhD at Leeds. And so kind of picking up sticks and moving to London wasn't really an option. So it was kind of a, a chance to get my foot in the door and to do it in my local community, which was a, a win-win. Yeah, well, we were, we were talking earlier, like, I, I wonder if we can kind of unpack. So to me, it's a fascinating model. So you work for um, Mercia, which maybe describe kind of the relation of Mercia to the UK government and kind of why, why does the UK government want to ultimately kind of be investing in startups? Mm -hmm. So Mercia is a publicly traded company. Um, we manage about $1.4 billion. Um, and we were started by um, uh, Dr. Mark Payton, who's a PhD pharmacologist out of Oxford, and he was managing some of the commercial spin-out funds. Um, he, he was he was involved with um, the commercialization strategy at Oxford, and um, he, the thesis really around it was is you had these innovation spin-out funds to try and get technology out of universities. But there wasn't much to, to follow on, which is reflective really of the market at the time where there wasn't as much venture funding to see novel ideas, whether they were coming out of the university or not, spun up. Um, meanwhile, in the US and, and other parts of the world, it was really starting to, to thrive. Um, and um, so the UK uh, ended up setting up a, a program, and I believe it happened across the EU as well. Um, uh, a program called the Entrepreneur Investment Scheme. Um, I'll, I'll have to double check that. Um, but it, I, it goes by EIS. Um, and uh, there's another one called uh, yeah, Ent Enterprise Investment Scheme. Sorry. And um, there's uh, and then there's a, an earlier stage one called SEIS. And what those um, funds allowed for was uh, People who wanted to put funds in earlier stage early stage businesses could get significant tax reliefs based on the funds invested. Um, they could claim back uh, a portion of those funds invested on their tax returns immediately, um, and then they could also claim additional amounts if the business didn't make it within a certain time frame. And then similarly, when if the business was successful and it sold, there was a further tax relief done on cap gains. Um, so, so that. That scheme was getting set up as well at the time. And so what ended up happening is Mercia um, was managed, ended up managing uh, some of the early stage university spin-outs focused on um, IP commercialization. Um, and then we started managing, we raised our own balance sheet 
Um, uh, how long? How long ago was that? Like when? When did that all start? It was back when we listed, and um, I wasn't with the business at the time, so I couldn't tell you the exact year that it listed off the top of my head. Um, but then we also started managing EIS funds. So instead of an individual managing um, a bunch of fifty or twenty-five or a thousand or ten thousand pound EIS investments, they could put a block investment with a fund manager who would then deploy it according to the rules. Um, and Mercia then later, uh, just not long before I joined, had acquired a business called Enterprise Ventures that had managed a number of the regional investment funds. So um, one of the the main ones uh, that stands out uh, it was the Northern Stars uh, Investment Fund. And that was um, one of the most successful, these regional funds. And um, ultimately, uh, through an asset called Blue Prism, which is currently traded publicly, um, and really pioneered the automatic robotic processing on uh, market, um, became a unicorn. Um, so that was an early, early stage investment that, that they invested in from that fund. Interesting. Um, what do you think? Like, and, and tell me, like, I, I so probably on, uh, similar to a lot of Americans, I think of, of UK and I think of, of London, right. Um, but like you actually, there are a bunch of distinct regions. And, and, and ecosystems, you'd mentioned Oxford, obviously, like great tradition of of R&D and commercialization. Maybe, maybe give, give us a walk around the country and kind of what are the regions and what are some of the identities, you know, of those regions? Yeah. So similar to the U.S., the U.K. has um, urban centers uh, that um, tend to dominate, you know, the, 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 the narrative. So in the UK, obviously London, the London region is, is the is, is probably the, the most well known. Um, but um, I would say that the region is broadly you've got London and the southeast, um, and then you've got um, the southwest, which will have you know areas like Bristol, um, and and then you've got Cornwall below that, and then up from there you have the Midlands, which is home to um, uh, Birmingham. Uh, that's the Coventry, and then um, and then obviously further east you'll have Wales, and then you'll have a block above that called the, the North, um, and, uh, and and uh, and winter is coming. Uh, no. yeah, the uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so that that the North is kind of broadly split into Yorkshire and Lancashire, so the old school War of the Roses. Um, so uh, on the northwest, um, you'll your major urban centers will be Manchester and Liverpool. Um, and then over in the uh, Yorkshire, you'll have Leeds, Sheffield, um, York, and Hull uh, as, as some of those main main urban areas. And where, where do like where do the most like I imagine outside of London, like where, where do the most ventures come from? So I mean, I saw some stats uh, when I went to a British Business Bank presentation yesterday, um, and you know, just the volume just really tends towards London. It's called the Golden Triangle. So between London, Oxford, and Cambridge, that's where a lot of the the, the, the money is. The startups are. Um, uh, you've got obviously a university, powerful university presence there, but at the same time, not unlike the U.S., you've got you know the North as a block, similar to say the American mid- sections of the American Midwest. You know, are huge, um, huge sources of industry. You know, with with significant large companies. You know, you've got Rolls Royce. Uh, you've got um, uh, 
significant um, uh, food manufacturers, different types of major industrial. You know, BAE is based in Preston, um, which is uh, is north. Uh, I should have should have made a list of some of the largest companies. Before. Yeah, yeah, no, but he, yes. Yeah. What it actually and it's interesting. Like, so, so we've been we're seeing that like the U.S. Defense Department is very aware of um, just ha- better capturing some of the the great tech startups that are you know better engaging with them uh, uh, in the U.K. So even we had a couple of my my folks uh, from FedTech were over in London last week, I believe, for. Uh, a, a big pitch competition that we were helping with that was around basically the U.S. Army giving a prize to uh, international c- companies that that could in theory be kind of solution providers. So there's a lot going on, and and, and it's definitely something where like I think that um, we're very aware over here that like we need to do a better job of sort of of, of working with UK based uh, tech startups. Yeah, so there, there's a lot happening in the regions. There's a lot of, of really great universities. You've got, um, especially in a COVID era, you've got a lot of people who you know moved back to their hometowns um, after spending a few years in London. Um, you've got a lot of other folks who had been commuting from Leeds or Manchester down to London quite often, decided they were done with that uh, up and down um, uh, lifestyle. So. There's a heat. There really is a huge amount happening in the regions, um, but it's just not um, because you don't have that concentration. So it's a bit like you know, effective if you were spreading across Indianapolis, Cleveland, um, Detroit. Not not so much Detroit's obviously huge, but um, you know, different parts of the, the Midwest. You know, throw in Memphis. It, you know, not that these the cities in the UK are necessarily as always as big as those. But put them together, and they are—you know—they are economically, you know, immensely powerful, a huge part of the UK economy. Yeah, it's yeah, and it, it's it's such an interesting. I, I wanted to get your kind of reaction to. So I think I, I've told you before that in the U.S., it's sort of this unique point in history in terms of, of regional innovation. So there's, you know, at least to my knowledge, never been this much of sort of a, a government emphasis on growing venture creation outside of just the coasts, right? Outside of your your San Francisco, LA, Boston, New York kind of ecosystems. So we have these programs um, that are just really, really well-funded. The, the National Science Foundation Engines program is uh, just, just getting off the ground where um, I think they awarded, the NSF awarded 44 um, contracts that would be a million dollars each to establish kind of regional innovation engines and, and kind of get get engines launched in you know pockets of the country that you wouldn't always associate with kind of R&D and tech ventures. Um, it's a really interesting time over here. Um, and I was just interested. I mean, so, so the UK and your work, you, you, you kind of approach that um, in, a, in a slightly different way. So, so maybe, maybe share a little bit about kind of the the way that Mercy uh, approaches kind of regional innovation, and then just being a being a, an American, um, like what would you like to see maybe the U.S. kind of adopt over here? Um, yeah, so it, similar to the the, the U.S., um, you know, there in in parts of the '60s and '70s, there was a real um, decline in industry. So where I'm at in Yorkshire, in particular, there's there was a real history of textiles um, and wool. And so, you know, a lot of those those mills um, and that industry saw saw real decline. 
Um, so really, ever since since then, there's been an effort to try and you know reinvigorate um, not those industries per se, but that those um, those those regions and find what was going to be the next sort of source source of economic growth. Um, and so there's been a number of different programs. So for a while, there was um, quite a lot of grant funding to try and get new technologies, new businesses off the ground. Um, but I uh, couldn't pinpoint exactly when it started, but there became, uh, they started pursuing more of a, a commercial investment model. Um, so one of, and I mentioned earlier that the, the Northern Stars Fund, which was an earlier iteration of, the, um, of that, those funds. And what it is, is that there is, it's government um, through the British Business Bank um, now is the most common stream, but other, other local governments uh, or, or councils, what's the right word for it? Other forms of local government have pursued a similar model um, of, of regional finance. But ultimately, via a government entity, pools of, of capital have been created to be invested commercially, but according to the terms of that government entity's um, uh, the, the terms of service, really, of, of that government entity. So it would have to stay within a specified region. It couldn't be used to support certain industries, which would either conflict with um, different types of what at the time would have been EU law, but other types, types of subs, subsidy rules. Um, there would be different kinds of... Just to be clear, so, it's, so um, public, public dollars go to um, business, uh, British Business Bank. Um, and, yeah, so and British then... Business Bank, yeah, will manage... So the, in the case of the Northern Powerhouse Fund, the British Business Bank will, um, will be the source of... will be where the, the, the capital from the different government entities go to sit... It is then packaged and contracted to suppliers. So we, in some way, you know, we are British Business Bank is our our client, and we okay. deploy the capital according to the rules of the British Business Bank. British Business Bank has set those rules in line with the um, entities that have supplied the capital. So they've agreed there uh, everything with their sources of capital, which is UK government primarily, and then other sort of quasi-government entities, they will then set in, uh, set up the terms of that deployment of capital. Um, and, um, and and to be clear, it could be that other non-government entities package, say a pension fund could, in theory, package into to, to, to those um, those funds as well. Um, I'm not familiar so, with like just, just to sort of look at like... Um... Would it be fair to say, like the U.S. equivalent, if this, and I don't think this is really happening at any scale, would be um, okay. U.S. government contracts with with like an Andreessen Horowitz to to make regional focused investments, and then and then is basically kind of a, a limited partner um, alongside yeah. other limited partners. Yeah. So so it would be yeah, quite literally. So uh, slightly different in the sense that Andreessen raises a lot of its its own capital, if you will, like it's um, a lot of the big funds will have pools of its own capital as well as capital for the managers. Um, so this is one big client. Um, so like, I suppose if you, yeah, similar in the sense, if you had one big pension fund or um, uh, that was putting a load of money into one and they said, right, I really care about education. 
I'm going to contract you, Andreessen Horowitz, to deploy one billion of capital into EdTech. It would be something in, like in a certain region. So, like to say, like, hey, it has to stay yeah, with you. The California teacher, one, I only wanted to go to California. Business. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think there's definitely like I don't think this is happening over here. I mean, we have the uh, things like Intel, right? Where it's a, you know uh, intelligence community. So think CIA, think NSA, funding yeah, profit, right? yeah, makes investments. Yeah, but this is I, it's a really interesting. When what, what's the size and kind of structure of the deals that you're typically doing? Yeah, so the I'll I'll stick to the fund that I know best, which is the Northern Powerhouse Fund, because that's the one that I spend all all my time on. Um, so the Northern Powerhouse Fund, um, believe in round numbers, was around um, a four hundred million pound fund uh, that went roughly two hundred million to in, in rough senses um, resulted in a split between debt and equity, uh, and then some to to about roughly a split of fifty fifty into Northwest, which is sort of think, think Manchester, and then. Um, the, and the other part going into, into Yorkshire, Tees, Humber, so I think Leeds, Hull, Middlesbrough, Sheffield, that kind of area. Um, and the um, the way it's deployed is it is fundamentally a commercial fund. So I think what I, you know, some, sometimes people would get confused. They would think it's government funding, so I'm entitled to apply for it. If I fill out the paperwork, I should, be, I should get it. And that's, for example, I mentioned um, the energy. That would be a fun conversation to have to have with. Yeah. <laughs> so in that, in that instance, they were running that in the, in the old school way, which is I don't have any way to say yes or no. I just set the rules. So if you tick all the boxes and you spend six to 12 months filling out paperwork for me and you meet all of the requirements, of course, you are you will get a loan. Right. That's not how this works. Um, we operate in the marketplace. As any other private investor, we at Mercia we are deploying other funds as well. So we operate separate to this fund as a investor deploying funds. So this is one tool in our chest as a investor. Um, and um, but as part of that, we have a sizable office in the region that we're deploying. We've got employees like myself who have been here for a while, and we have relationships with lots of different businesses and and understand the business ecosystem and what businesses are coming and what individuals to work with and what individuals not to work with. Um, and um, and then we, we deploy that in a fully commercial fashion. So our equity stakes, you know, once we're on the cap table, we negotiate and act like any other um, with the few stipulations of it's got, the business has got to stay in the region um, and we've got to stay away from certain areas like gambling, firearms, manufacturing, that kind of thing. Isn't oh, usually a problem. Uh, we can't do others. Other things like um, very traditional businesses that are already strong. So things like property, banking, and insurance. Just because those industries are, they're, they don't need any more additional support. If if you if you could go into those, you probably would, and you'd make a nice return. But it would be accomplishing the mission. Wait, wait. What happens? Like so, when when things go really well and the fund produces a ton of value, does that go back to the government or how does that work? Back, it goes back to British Business Bank or and, and the, the the LPs. Um so so the those that invested, you know, via what British Business Bank package will see return on their investment. So it's instead of government handing out hundred million of grants, they will have deployed hundred million and they may get back 
a hundred million, they make it back two hundred million, they make it back fifty million. It's you know they've done it on a commercial terms, but it's they will get something back almost you know, almost certainly if that capital has been deployed commercially and you know you haven't really fully struck out, you should get something back. So when it goes really well, so the example I said with Blue Prism, you know that was a million, roughly a million pound investment, um, and ultimately that resulted in a hundred million pound return to to the client. Um, and then similarly, we um, just uh, exited a business called Ferradium, which pioneered some really interesting technology, sodium ion batteries as opposed to lithium ion. Um, and we just sold that for a hundred million pounds. Um, so again, that, that will, will have returned sizable amount back to our, our shareholders across a couple of different regional funds. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And this was kind of what, why I wanted to have you on the podcast, just because I, I think this, um, strategy could be really interesting over here, you know, in the U S where we have, again, just so much happening in terms of facilitating regional innovation. So there's a, the, the national science foundation program. I mentioned there's other, um, EDA, um, economic development administration is doing a, a, a bunch of programs to, yeah, kind of empower, you know, regional innovation and, and, and that infrastructure. The funding piece, though, is is a piece that I, I don't see quite as much where you would actually, in theory, say, okay, government funds are going to get managed by very proficient VCs, you know, who know how to, to do this and create a return. Um, I, I, so flipping that around a little bit. So if you had kind of a blank check um, and, and we were able to, to, to get you back over here in the States uh, to, to build a new program. Uh, what would that look like if you had, yeah, just sort of as a thought exercise, kind of the unlimited resources and you wanted to, to empower regional innovation here? Um, I, I think it would be really interesting if you could run a similar program um, in certain regions of the U.S. that you would say, um, I don't know, pick, pick a spot like Detroit um or cleveland or indianapolis or um i oh i think wisconsin would be really interesting to see something run that you know there um well, and, like, cleveland's fine okay cleveland doesn't need it cleveland is in it. no i'm, I'm <laughs> talking about yeah cleveland's a good chair so okay yeah just keep going. <laughs> well i i'm not i'm not trying to i'm not picking on anything as 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 say a, a economically challenged region. I think all, all of those cities are, are, are doing fine, but they do represent cities that have had core industries ripped out from them, right? So Sheffield used to make a ton of steel, Yorkshire used to make a ton of textiles, but those industries are gone, you know, and, um, or not, not gone, but significantly reduced, um, uh, and not nearly there in the capacity that they were 50 years ago. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. So, um, I think it would just be really interesting to, to, to take up, if you just say you had a billion billion dollars and you picked um, two or three sort of uh, states, if you will, but I mean, it's difficult to say whether it's a state or a certain region, but you, but you, you picked a region. Um, I don't know how you get, you would define it. And you said, right, we're going to have people there. We're going to be very careful about the people that we pick who are, um, who've got relationships, they've got investing experience. They're going to be on the ground and they're going to deploy capital in a completely commercial fashion. Um, but instead of giving out a billion in grants and just say another round of national science grants or whatever, um, that you uh, 
invested in commercially. So, and, and you picked, um, and you set a framework for how you, uh, you, know, you pick certain regions that would be acceptable and you would exclude certain areas that don't need support. You would identify the gap that you feel like is in the market, either regionally or technologically or combination thereof. And you start deploying that capital and see where you get to. And I mean, a billion is a big number to start with, but I think if you divided it across, um, you know, a couple of regions, I think it could be massively impactful because you could start making, um, I imagine a pilot program would be smaller than a billion, but even if it was a hundred million, you could start making some of those smaller initial bets that get, you know, businesses off the ground. Cause there's a huge amount of ambition, you know, in the States and in the regions. And, and, you know, what was it? Not everyone is going to have a wealthy parents or wealthy uncles to give them that first couple hundred K to get off the ground. So you asked earlier, what sort of check sizes am I writing? So typically I'm writing check sizes. We do anything from 100K to 2 million. Um, and on average, that tends to be 500K to 1.5 million um, across an initial check size. So that is really that starter capital um, to, to approaching some kind of scale. And, and really, we're often we're co-investing as well. So you can create funds, fund size rounds of, you know, a couple of million, um, but be an anchor investor at that, help catalyze that. So we invest, co-invest with our own funds as well as other funders. And um, just recently, I, uh, in January, completed a three billion round into a digital twin um, technology business that was a spin out of Leeds University. So that started with um, initial investments from just the Northern Powerhouse Fund, but managed to pull together that sort of uh, blended three million raise from across three different funds uh, for that that round. So you can sort of see that journey, which has helped get the business spun out of the university, get it up off the ground, and now you know it was able to raise a full three million pounds from a, you know, a couple of different funds. Well, and, and just to, I mean, what's the right like? What's the right number uh, for for? And I know it's just kind of a loaded question, but so so what I see over here, we, we the the there's a lot of money for startups right now, and that's a great thing. I see maybe a lack of a unified strategy around how to deploy that. So you'll see, okay, there's prize competitions for startups. Go to challenge.gov. You'll see a bunch of wonderful prize competitions. We FedTech gets to work with a lot of the companies that kind of go through those. You'll see check sizes, you know, that are 10K to, you know, 50K pretty often for ventures. That's great, you know, because that's that's an injection of capital. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you'll see, you know, some of the, I would say, more mature, you know, your your DARPA kind of structure will sometimes do like a, a direct to phase two SBIR that's like, a, a, you know, hey, write a, a proposal, here's a million dollars kind of thing, That then that, that's great. But I don't, I don't see as much of a unified strategy of kind of why do you pick fifty versus why do you pick a million? Um, what do you think? I mean, what's what what could that strategy be in your experience? Well, I think there's a difference between sort of pure startup where it's just conceptualizing, in which case, yeah, grants are probably the right thing because you're just saying, "Can I do this? Is this is this something that's possible?" Um, where I'm investing is where you're you're at the stage of trying to you know deliver a commercial return. So that can be as extreme as we've got something. Uh, it's a a type of biofuel. Um, 
uh, and they've developed a new process for developing um, this, this um, uh, biofuel into jet fuel. Um, so you have a bio jet fuel. Um, so, so that's pretty long range, crazy to um, a really interesting software business that did hospitality software, but was doing something really interesting. Um, and, but that would be much more of a traditional tech VC. So, but, but the, the consistent theme across that is where is the gap in the marketplace to achieving, um, uh, to, to seeing yeah, a consistent thing, consistent theme, sorry, is, is, is filling a gap in the market for businesses of either a certain size or a certain technology or in a certain region or combination of those three. Um, and they are seeking to, to bring something to market commercially. Um, and, and they've got enough traction to say that there is commercial demand, there is commercial interest, but there's no other entity really willing to fund it. Um, but you believe enough in the, the team, the plan and the product that they've developed to, to try and help close that gap, um, and take on that risk. So. It's just it's and then that gap oftentimes there's because because of those three factors I mentioned there's region there's technology and uh I forget the other one that I said yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so the quantum really varies based on what your thesis is so within the Northern Powerhouse for example they have um, small startup loans program to so sub 50k so they do fill that gap um they have debt as well for small businesses that the banks aren't lending to as much anymore they don't have efficient programs for those and their risk profile around those has changed um so um that you know they want to ensure that there's enough uh working capital on a debt basis for qualified businesses um and and then there's the equity pot interesting okay yeah yeah no, it's, it's definitely it's a fascinating question kind of the strategy of, of of i guess the only unifying theme that i see is that it, the quicker the the the, the speaking you know the speed of deployment is the important thing right whether you're giving I, a small or a large speed, speed is huge um and um i think that that's the big difference is because we are operating as a commercial entity and i think that's that's what's interesting about the structure is that because the the funds have been allocated and deployed um you know they've been worked through bbb we as a private entity are making the investment decisions. So you're not going to get, or you shouldn't get if you do it. You won't get a Solyndra, for example, where, you know, even my understanding of that is, is it was a bad decision, but there was nothing illegal that happened. Wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, wasn't a good decision, obviously, but you know, they're not familiar enough with the case to comment thoroughly, but you had an instance there where then Congress used that situation as, as a whipping board and they're still using it today. Um, in different instances and holding it up and saying the government backed this and that was a waste of taxpayer dollars, right? In this instance, I don't know that you could do that because you've said, right, we've allocated this pot capital. It's, um, you know, for this instance, uh, Northern Powerhouse, it's 100 million pounds. We don't go more than 2 million into any one business before going back to them, go up to 5 million into a single business, and that'll be on over the lifetime of that investment. Um, so there's not a, the government backed this. No, it was mercy. I was deploying the capital, according to the rules. We make the investment decision. So no one can go back and say British business backed, backed, or British, the UK government backed so-and-so. 
because that's not the case. They created a fund and we backed that. We as Mercy backed that. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, well, I guess, well, just to sort of finish up, we always ask guests what, if you're sitting and having a beer with a, a startup, uh, you know, picture, okay, you're just at the local pub, right? And, and you have a, a first time founder. Um, what do you, what do you say? Like, what, what advice do you give that founder on, on the journey and, and on kind of what to focus on? Um, so I think, I think the one thing that really comes to mind that I've seen over and over again is invest in your relationships. Um, you know, invest in your customer relationships and supplier relationships, obviously, but especially your employees as well. Um, because they're, they're the ones that actually get something, get something done. You know, um, you can come up with the greatest technology in the world, but if no one's using it and no one's helping to deliver it, um, then, uh, then it's all, all for naught. Um, so, and, and similarly, you know, especially your employees, they're the ones that are going to be with you up late at night, um, especially in the early days, getting, getting those bids out, getting technology delivered or the solution or service or whatever it is, um, on time and to spec, um, and uh, yeah, so you really just make sure you want to take care of those relationships, treat people right, um, pay it forward, um, and attack opportunities. So, yeah, it's great advice. The uh, it's often the part that I, I think it's easy when you're building a product, building a, a customer base. It's very easy to forget to to do that or to not not prioritize just the the interpersonal piece, um, which when you do is actually. The part that I think founders are going to reflect on as as being the uh, the most rewarding, right? It's not necessarily the, the product uh, that you, you sell or the financial gains that you make, but it's it's the people that that come along uh, in the journey and you, what you do together. So, with that, Will, um, we know it's getting close to, to pub o'clock in the UK, so we'll, we'll we'll let you go and just want to say thanks for uh, the great discussion here. Keep doing the good work you're doing. Uh, We'll see if you, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back over uh, to the U.S. at some point when you're ready, but I'm really happy that you've uh, found such a good home in the U.K. So thanks, Will. Uh, thanks so much for having me.